0: In the beginning, God. Let's just start there. God exists eternally in three persons, and there is one God. For all eternity, God exists in a triune community of love. Holiness and joy. All three members of that community of the Godhead, perfectly inclined to one another for one another. God lacks for nothing whatsoever. There's always been perfection and there's different responsibilities and roles and functions in that perfect community of joy. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, kind of, sort of, not exactly. Sometime in eternity past, whatever that means, there was some sort of massive cosmic upheaval as one of the angels that was assigned to serve the Lord God on the high holy mountain of God, he rebelled. He decided that what he had was not enough and so he tried to usurp And he swept a third of the angelic hosts out of the sky, out of the presence of Yahweh, of God most high. And there was chaos, and there was disorder, and there was disruption. This is long before the existence of anything physical or material whatsoever. And there was chaos, and there was darkness, and there was void. But, but, the spirit of God, the third member of the Godhead Trinity, hovered over the void, hovered over the deep. And God said, let there be. And before he even got to the vowel, there was. See, the Bible is the story of the earth. There's a whole lot more that happened in eternity past that we're not really given all that much detail. There's a whole lot more that will happen in eternity future that we're not given a whole lot of detail. The Bible is the story of the earth The Bible is the story of God's glory, most precisely, most specifically demonstrated and depicted and delivered as God works throughout the ages of humanity to redeem a species that he loved, that he created in his image, but that rebelled. He is most glorified and is displayed and demonstrated in his redemption of a rebellious species that does not by nature want him. The Bible is the story of God creating an environment deliberately and intentionally, not reactionarily, but precisely and purposely so that there would be an atmosphere, an environment, an aesthetic in which God and man, God and woman, God and people could actually dwell together. So our big idea for this morning, and very likely for the next several weeks as we are in this new stage of our study in 1 Corinthians, is very simply, but very powerfully, God and us. That's the thing. Maybe you think about that all the time, maybe you don't. But this is the story of our Bible. The creation story sets the stage for the rest of our Bible all the way through the very end of Revelation. The creation narrative is, in fact, the story of the production by God of a temple. I want you to imagine, using your sanctified imagination, I want you to really and truly, for seriousness, imagine Eden. The sinlessness of it. The holiness of it, the innocence of it, the beauty of it, the animals, there is no tooth and claw that is ever feared. The the natural created elements of of rivers and streams, perhaps mountains, and their lush vegetation, and the related. And (laughs) did I mention? God is there, unmitigated, unrestrained. His presence. Personally relating to Adam and to Eve, and they are knowing one another. And then the unthinkable happens. They discern and determine in their hearts that God isn't enough. Oh, golly, where have we heard that before? They fail to trust God and think that perhaps there is more than what He has given them, and so they rebel. And the rest of the story of the Bible is how God has been working through the ages to reconcile mankind to himself and to one another. Well, this is the story of the Bible. I love to tell it and I hope you'll love to hear it. The next major moment on the calendar or the chronology, if you will, of the biblical narrative is this massive uh, season of violence on the earth. And so God decides to destroy the earth, all of it, and start over. And yet again, there is darkness, there is chaos, there is void as God covers the entire world with water. He floods it from Genesis 6 through 9. But this time, it's not just the spirit of God that hovers over the chaos and the dark and the deep and the void. No, this time it's a little physical microcosm. There's a little box. And in that box, there are people, man and woman, and there are animals. And conceivably, there are also plants to feed the animals. There's this little microcosm which the spirit of God hovers over. And then there's a redemptive recreation, don't you see? There's a new life, there's a new world that is not like the previous world in ways that I don't even begin to understand. And so the nations begin to rise and they flourish and they decide we want no part of this sovereign God. We will be God. We have the technology, we will build ourselves a tower. And that temple of redeemed recreation is yet again defiled. And so God scatters them. And then God creates a new thing out of a no thing. He calls a pagan moon worshiper from Baghdad with a barren wife who's over the hill to create a new nation. And what is the purpose of this new nation? To go into a land that is Yahweh's and to create a temple. To create an environment and an atmosphere and an aesthetic in which God and men can dwell together where his righteousness will be resembled and reflected to all of the world from that epicenter of humankind. How'd they do? Find themselves in Egypt. But at some point at long last, God sends a deliverer, Atzar. And Moses brings his people, the son of God Israel, out of Egypt back into that promised land for another attempt at a redemptive recreation. And this time, God says, we're going to take it another step further. We're going to create yet another specific and more precise environment. We're going to call it the tabernacle. And it's going to be an exact replica of my creation. You read the Exodus accounts and all the stunning specificity of one quarter cubit is to be the pomegranate and one half cubit is to be the picture of the sea cow and on and on. Why all the detail? Because the tabernacle is a temple where God and man can dwell together. But this time, God doesn't hover over the chaos and the void. God doesn't have people in a box. This time, the spirit of God energizes one particular person, and it's not Moses. It's in Exodus 31. It's a craftsman named Bezalel. And God says, I am hovering over you so that you will create the space, the aesthetic, the environment, and the atmosphere in which God and man dwell together. But now, because of the rebellion, because of sin, there must be atonement. Something innocent is going to have to die for the sake of the guilty, and then we can have communion. Well, Hundreds of years go by and finally King Solomon decides to take that portable version and he gives it a permanent home with the construction of the temple in Jerusalem. All of the resources that his father David have amassed, they take the tabernacle and they make it solid, permanent, immovable. All of the design, all of the decor in 1 Kings 6 are again intended to represent creation. There has been sin, there's been rebellion, and so something innocent has to continue to die for the sake of the guilty. And that system goes on and it persists for over 1,500 years. And then finally, Jesus, the Son of God, true Israel, he, John 1 says, tabernacles among us. He comes into our context. He provides a sacrifice as the innocent for the sake of the guilty, and he himself is the temple. God and us. He turned the page and therefore he transferred the age from that of a national people, Israel, to a supernational people, the church. We see all that in the book of Acts, specifically in Acts 2. The people of the church were supposed to be a foretaste and a preview of the coming attraction that is the kingdom that has already begun, it's initiated, it's instigated, it's inaugurated, but is as yet still to come in its final full fruition. The distinguishing mark of this new age is yet again the presence of the Holy Spirit. Not hovering over the chaos and the void and the deep, not raising a small group of people, not energizing individuals for a particular task, but now literally and eternally indwelling those whom he has redeemed. Do you see? There is a redemptive recreation that is not just happening all over the world, it's happening through the people who inhabit the planet. It's an amazing thing. The book of Isaiah says that one day there will be a new heaven and a new earth. The old is gone, the new is coming. The apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians five seventeen, it's you, you are the new heaven and the new earth. Don't you get it? You have been indwelled by God's Holy Spirit. He's doing the new thing. He is identifying the world now through you. You are spirit filled, you are spirit filled. Led, spirit, fed, and everywhere you go, your little sphere of influence is intended to redemptively recreate the world so that it can be God and us. So that as you're walking through Home Depot, you're thinking, this is my impact crater of God and us. As you're in line at Taco Bell, there's grace for that too. You're thinking, this is my impact crater of God and us. It's now decentralized. All these little pockets of spirit-indwelled people redemptively recreating the aesthetic, the environment, the atmosphere that God intended from the very beginning. That's the story of the Bible. I haven't sweat this much since Mike took over my TikTok account. Okay. (laughs) So then... In view of all of those previous environments that were intended to be spaces in which God and humanity dwell together and enjoy one another, how should the church operate? How should the environment be when the New Testament is so vexingly vague on actual practice? Well, for that... We have to go to the New Testament, and we have to read through all of the epistles, not just one, not just one passage, all of the epistles. The New Testament epistles are like the priestly manuals for the church in the New Testament age. And that's why these next four chapters, four chapters of 1 Corinthians are so massively important. Something was out of order in the church at Corinth, and it has been my prayer and my preparation all week long That we are able to identify the same issues, the same tarnishes and taints, the stains and the sins as this church that is supposed to gather to demonstrate what it is to have a space in which God and us, the church is out of order. And so the Apostle Paul sitting in Ephesus takes four chapters to try to rectify what's been going on in Corinth so that the church will be that environment that is God. And us. And so, with all of that as a lead up, <laughs> I need you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This morning, we're gonna cover a contentious passage. I'm gonna read all the way through it, but I beg you, I beseech you, before you get mad, leave, or send your emails, remember the story of the Bible, that it is all about God and us. It's a perplexing passage that has infuriated people for 2,000 years is all. I'm going to read straight through it, and then I'm going to try to make sense of it, and then we're going to apply it. 1 Corinthians, beginning in chapter 11, verse 2. If you were here last week, you saw that verse 1 should actually be the conclusion of chapters 8, 9, and 10. So 1 Corinthians 11 starts a brand new section, beginning in verse 2, and it goes like this. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But, (laughs) hey, good job on that. However, this sounds like my parenting style. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, is it a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. <laughs> this is God's word? Uh, yeah. Wow. I literally have a note in my sermon document that says, whew, good luck. My hope this morning is to try to tackle this passage in our Bible and discern, detect, discover what is God saying. My approach to this passage is an approach that we try to say every single Sunday in some form or fashion. What did it mean to them then and there? I know that a lot of the things that we just read make you get your back up, and the claws come out, and the guys some of the guys are like, oh yeah, I know how you all feel about the passage because there is not a bonnet among you. So what do we do with this? We have to critically important discern, discover, detect what did it mean to them then and there? That is the heart of expository teaching. And that question in some passages is easier to answer than in others. And candidly, I've read, I don't know, 30, 40 commentaries on this passage this week, and the vast majority of them punt. They go, yeah, it's weird, it's cultural, we don't really know what's going on there. Uh, yeah. How about communion? Let's talk about communion next week. woo Now, I will say, most of the time when I preach, because I'm a recovering people pleaser, most of the time when I preach, I'll generally make most people agree with me. There are times when I'll make about half the people agree, quarter of the people completely confused and a quarter of the people disagree. This morning is one of those rare opportunities where I get to tick everybody off. No matter what you think this passage is about, I can just about promise I don't agree. And so wherever you truck yourself in to this passage, and what, it's probably not what you think. And I will tell you, I have spent more time in preparation for this passage than I think I have in a decade. I really have. I mean, literally. Uh, 60 hours this week trying to make sense because this is God's holy and inspired and infallible and inerrant word. So we have to treat it as such. Now, I'm super grateful for a lot of really brilliant scholars. I won't mention all their names now, but have been super, super helpful to me. They are vilified in academia. And that saddens me. It should not be. But I'm super thankful for their work. I think they're on to it. The issue, by the way, is not pointless, the issue is not benign, what we're talking about in 1 Corinthians 11, two to 16, because the church has used this paragraph to be absolutely horrible to women for 2,000 years. And I have been wrecked this week, reading of the stories and the accounts of churches of marriages, of homes, and of communities that have misappropriated, misinterpreted, and misapplied this passage to the pain of women and sometimes even of men that does not at face value create a temple, an environment, and an atmosphere, an aesthetic in which God and us dwell together. All right, at long last, let me get to the passage, which believe it or not, is not gonna take all that long. Once I explain how I think we're actually supposed to read it. Now, we started 1 Corinthians way back in September. And all along, in preparation for this passage, I have been trying to drop breadcrumbs all along the way, saying that, hey, this is Paul's second letter to them. He'd already written him a letter, and he'd gotten a response and report. And so he's writing this very long second letter to them that is uh, very lengthy, and it's responding to and rebuking a lot of their issues. Now, we know that through much of 1 Corinthians, he is quoting their beliefs, their errors, or their statements in line. We, We saw that just last week in chapter 10, verse 23. Your English translations, most of them will say, all things are lawful for me. Paul will say, but not all things are permissible, or not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are edifying, or constructive, or expedient. So we already know that he does that. The problem is nobody can agree on how many times there's actually supposed to be quotation marks. Nobody knows, for sure. Why is that? Because these letters were written in what's called unseal Greek. Just to geek out and Greek out just a little bit. They were written with no spaces, all uppercase letters, no punctuation, including punctuation marks. It's just block text, side to side, edge to edge of the parchment. And so the reader had to understand from relationship to the writer what's actually being said. And so it makes a lot of this stuff very difficult. Not only that, over 2,000 years, people have just assumed that this passage is all Paul. And so they translate it into the English as though it's Paul's voice. And I think that's a grave egregious mistake. I want to say, I am not trying to be right about this. This is a hypothesis. I think I'm correct, but if I'm wrong, praise God. If I am wrong or if I am right, it doesn't actually change any of our fundamental essential doctrines. It won't even change practically how we do church. So I want to say that right off the bat. But anywhere between six and ten times in this letter alone, Paul will include their sayings or their slogans or their issue or error. We just don't have quotations. And so your English translations vary. Sometimes they'll put quotes in there, sometimes they won't. Sometimes they will, sometimes they won't. Last week, 29b through 30 in chapter 10, I think should be in quotes. Some of your translations agree, some of them don't. It's okay, there's grace for all that. But this is a super important passage. He does it all through the book of Romans. That was four years ago. Some of you might remember. We created a, a character named Murray, the, ob, the imaginary objector. He does it all the time through Romans. And so in this book, he does it a lot. And so here's my interpretive key for 1 Corinthians eleven, two 2 to 16. Some of what is written is from the mind of Paul. Some of it is quoting the Corinthians. He's quoting their sayings that probably came from the letter or at least the report. He has to be. Otherwise, he contradicts himself directly and this is gibberish. But our Bible is not gibberish. It is God's holy and inerrant and inspired and infallible word. I'm grateful that Bethel practically does value and elevate women. And I think we can do more That said, we are going to keep this in correlation with all the rest of the New Testament teachings on the role of women in church, and we're not going to violate those passages, such as 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and Hebrews 13 and 1 Peter 5 and Acts 6 and Acts 20 and on and on and on. What I hope is that our feeling, our thinking, our relating is adjusted, that we think of women differently in church, at home, in the community. This matters massively. Okay. At long last, chapter 11, verse 2. Let me just go ahead and tell you how I would actually uh, slice and dice this up. If you're the kind of person that makes notes in your Bible, I encourage you to do that. If you're not the kind of person, then become that kind of person right now. Don't write it in pen if you don't want to. Just make yourself a note. Here's how I believe the dialogue is going, back and forth. It's Paul, and then Paul quoting them, and then Paul, and then Paul quoting them, and then Paul, and then Paul quoting them. Very, very important. I think verses two and three are the mind of Paul. I think verses four and five are the Corinthians. I think verse six is Paul, and that's a weird one. Seven to 10 are the Corinthians. 11 to 16 is Paul. Now, once you see this, you kind of can't unsee this. Now, I don't want that to discourage you to think, well, gosh, I don't know how to read unsealed Greek. I don't know how to find this out. I don't want to read my Bible. No, 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 no. I want to encourage you to, to dive deeper into the text and study. Anything that tugs us closer to God is a good thing. It's God and us. So again, verses two to three are Paul, four to five, the Corinthians. Verse six is Paul, seven to 10 is the Corinthians, 11 to 16 is Paul. Let me start very, very briefly. Verse two, now I commend you, I praise you as a literal. Hey, you guys are doing a great, from what I hear, you're doing a great thing. You're keeping the main things the main thing. And that's good. This is gonna be things like teaching on the resurrection, on the the humanity and deity of Christ. He was with them for 18 months. I hear you're keeping that stuff going. That's very good. That's awesome. But just because these other issues aren't the main thing doesn't mean they don't matter. I commend you because you uh, remember me in everything and maintain the traditions. Traditions is not having cranberry sauce at Thanksgiving. That's all the doctrinal distillations that Paul gave them. For example, you'll never find the word Trinity in your Bible, and yet Paul undoubtedly shared with them that God is three persons existing eternally, and there is one God. That is a tradition, even though it is biblically discerned. You're not gonna find the word Trinity. The word Trinity is a tradition of the church making sense of the doctrinal and theological truth that is God's three-in-one essence. You've maintained the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But, however, it's a very strong contrast of here, but I want you to understand headship. Why does he say that? Because evidently and apparently they didn't and they weren't. And it was causing hardship and consequence. It was causing hurt and pain. And that's not an environment for God and us. I just want to ring that bell as often as I can. It's not an environment for God and us. In this age, the church is to be that environment. All over the world, varying sizes, different floors of different strange gray big buildings. This is supposed to be an environment of God and us. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. Now, the problem in this passage is that the word head, kephale. Sometimes it means physical head above your shoulders. Sometimes it means uh, the the leadership, the authority. Sometimes it just means the source, like the head of the river. Same word, kephale. And you just have to have the context to know what he's talking about. If you read all of these verses, 2 to 16, and you think that it's all just Paul, then it makes no sense. He's, he's doing some things where he's mixing words, and you can't do that. The other problem is that the word for man and woman is the exact same words as husband and wife. So is he saying man and woman, or is he saying husband and wife, or is he mixing them? It depends whose voice is actually coming off the text. So It's a challenging passage, have you noticed? I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. Now, clearly in that context, it's metaphorical. This physical skull with porridge for brains is not actually Jesus. You know that. It's a metaphorical thing. The context makes that clear. The head of a wife is her husband. Clearly that must also be metaphorical. And it's it's talking about authority and leadership, not source. But he's going to make fun of them in a moment because they don't understand that. The head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Even the Lord Jesus Christ, the second member of the Godhead trinity, has authority or primacy over him. That's headship. That's how it is supposed to work because that's a created order. In the beginning, God created, and it was very good. There is order. There is cosmos, no longer chaos. At least that's God's intended design. Now then, that was through verse 3. Verse 4 and 5, I maintain, I contend, is the Corinthians' mind. Paul's going to write it down here, but this is from the voice or the mind of the Corinthians. Kind of have to try to keep that straight. Verse 4, they say, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. See, I had to put it in Corinthian language so you'd understand because that's how they spoke in Corinth back then. They were, you know, from ARP and... we chuckle. This is why 2,000 years later from this verse, some of you men would rather eat a light bulb than wear a hat indoors. It is a misunderstanding and a misappropriation and a misapplication of a single Bible verse that over the millennia has become bedrock. Ideas for humans are hard to shake. I'm not inviting you all to wear a sombrero next week, but you could. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, they said, I believe. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Amen, amen. Now let me hear that's right. With her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Whoa. Uh, no, it isn't. And Paul knows that. Every Bible dictionary, every Bible encyclopedia, every commentary of Corinth from 2,000 years ago will tell you a woman with a shaved head was a giant disgrace. She was dead woman walking. It meant that she was either a prostitute sold into bondage against her will or she had been either literally unfaithful in marriage or accused of being unfaithful in marriage and her husband would shave her head against her will, toss her out into the world and she would be the recipient of unspeakable abuses and indignities until death. Paul would never say such a thing. This is is supposed to be absolutely gut-wrenching. The apostle Paul would never say if she doesn't pray with her head covered. It's like... (laughs) it's like she should be abused to death. I don't have daughters. Not a girl, dad. But if I did, this makes me so sad and motivates me to do things that would not honor our Jesus. No, this is not what the Apostle Paul is saying. Of course not. And it's been propagated poorly for 2,000 years. Verse six is sort of a key here. Verse six is... Well, Paul's going to do a, a Greek rhetorical trick. It's called an argument of the absurd. Verse 6 is the mind in the mouth of Paul, but it's an absurd sarcastic. In verse 6, he says, yeah, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. She might as well shave herself. That's the literal. She should just shave herself. Whoa. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. That's what you're saying? Really, guys? really? It's that serious that if she won't cover it, you're saying to her that she's like a dead woman walking simply because she won't respect your authority? Verse 6 is tragic. It's Paul being a smart aleck because he's an apostle. I know that Paul knows that he's writing scripture. I don't think Paul understands that this is going to be the church's document for 2,000 years necessarily. He thought Christ was returning imminently. Verse 6 is this radically sarcastic, absurd. Really, guys? It's that serious? You're saying she won't cover her head? And so it's like she should just be a dead woman walking? Oh, my gosh. And apparently, also we know from earlier chapters, there were some women that were inappropriately asserting themselves, so there were challenges from that side of the equation as well. Remember how I told you I was going to make everybody mad? Here we go. Verse 7 and to 10, I believe, is again Paul quoting from the Corinthians. Verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. What? what Where did that come from? That, though written by Paul, is not true. Now, for me, that was the final straw that broke the camel's back. Paul, Jew of Jews, Pharisee of Pharisees, tribe of Benjamin, tutored under Gamaliel, he knew Torah better than any of us will ever imagine knowing Torah. He knew, Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28, that God created them, man and female. He created them in his image, and they are his glory. And he said to them, you both shall have dominion, and you both shall eat of the produce of the garden. Paul knew that. What he says in verse 7 cannot come from the mind of Paul. Now, I will say in my house, the woman is clearly the glory of man. Yes, but that's not what the point is. Women are absolutely and of course created in the image and glory of God. And Paul has always affirmed that in anything else he's ever written. Verse 7 is from these Corinthians who were getting it terribly wrong. And they continue. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. You remember that story, Paul, you taught us about Genesis 2? You remember that story, Paul? Oh, yeah. it's like a, like a dude, he like fell asleep. And then like a readable and then, like, whoa, here's a woman. Whoa, whoa, man. And Paul says, Yeah, no, uh, yeah. yes, I I remember the story. Thank you, verse 9. Neither was man created for woman, <laughs> but woman for man. Uh, you'll you can search from the table of contents to the maps. You're never gonna find scripture in either testament that says the woman was created for man. You will find God say that she is a helpmate or a helper. The word is atzar. I've already heard that word. Atzar does, in fact, mean helper. The only other person who gets that title is the Holy Spirit. That word atzar also means deliverer. All throughout the Psalms, when Israel is at war, they say, God, you are my atzar. You rescue me from danger. You pull me out of the miry pit. You set my feet upon the rock because you are my helper. The Holy Spirit was not made for you, far from it. So this has been a gross misappropriation that the Corinthians were, hey, she's just an accessory for me. Got my SUV, got my dear lease, I got my Apple Watch, and I got me a sweet little filly. Oh, dear God, please expunge that from your minds, fellows. Verse 10, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. And then they do this great, you know, because of the angels. Like what an ultimate Bible juke where the men are going, hey, hey, you better get back in there and make me some pie because of the angels. You know what I'm talking about right now. Because of the angels, and listen, I know that in the Bible, there are many times when the presence of angels signify the presence of God. I get that. At the beginning of the law in Exodus 19, the angels are on the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. Angels were present when Christ was resurrected. I get all that. That's a different prepositional phrase. Because of the angels, not so that the angels can see the gospel of grace like Peter talks about in 1 Peter 2. No, 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 no. This is because the angels. I'll get you. Now, that's crazy. Paul would never say that. He's already told them in chapter 6, verse 3, that you all, men and women, you will judge angels. You will have authority and superiority over the angels. These guys are using it as a threat. You better hush your mouth now. Hush up now because of angels. And what are, what are the women supposed to do? Okay, angels. I haven't actually studied angelology. I don't know. Are they up? Are they, what? what Verse 11, nevertheless, thank you, ESV gets it right. There are three different kinds of contrastive or alternative word in Greek. This is the strongest one. In Greek, it is plain, plain. However, nevertheless, oh, but, verse 11 starts Paul to the end of this passage. It is now the mind of Paul. He's going to correct, clarify, and rebuke. Now, just very quickly, beginning in verse 11, Paul says, plain, nevertheless, he takes the controls back. He's no longer quoting them. This is the mind of Paul. Nevertheless, in the Lord, this is how you know it's Paul. It's his favorite prepositional phrase, in Christ, in Christ, in the Lord. There's a new creation. There's neither male nor female. There's neither Gentile nor Jew nor slave nor free. In the Lord, that's the new identity. Why? Because Jesus is that new redempted re-creation for God and us exist and express and enjoy together in the Lord. Paul says, verse 11, woman is not independent of man. That's good. Nor man of woman. One was not created necessarily exclusively for the other. There's a mutual, joyous interdependence. Gosh, what does that sound like? It sounds like the Trinity. Where these three members of the Godhead are for each other and they love each other and they're loved by each other. That's what man and woman are to do. They are to reflect and resemble God Himself. Verse 12 For as a woman was made for man, good, so man is now born of woman. Oh, you like that? You like that? That woman came from a man, good. Guess what, Chachi? All eight billion of the rest of us came from a woman. If you're keeping score at home, you're losing. Yeah, so man is now born of woman. And all things, by the way, are from God. He's already said that. At the beginning, God is the head of Christ. It's all about his primacy. Now, he's dropping breadcrumbs himself. He's going to circle back to this in chapter 15, verse 28. We'll be there, Lord willing, on Palm Sunday. It's all about God. The Bible is the story of God creating an environment and an aesthetic and an atmosphere where it's God and us, and you're monkeying it up, Corinthians, with your hubris and your pride and your stubbornness. God is the head of all of these things. All things come from God, not from you, not from her. It's all God's plan and provision. Verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Notice Paul does here. He nuances it. He doesn't say pray and prophesy. So this is a gentle rebuke to the women. They were wanting to be these eschatological women who were saying, hey, we are the priestesses now. Move over, knuckle dragon boys. Paul does not qualify that. He says, no. Is it proper for a woman to pray? He didn't include prophesying because he will stop that from happening in Timothy and in Titus. So we're not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Is it proper for a woman to pray? He doesn't even say publicly or privately. The implied answer is, yes, it's appropriate for a woman to pray. If you're at home, if you're driving, if you're in church, if you're on a platform with a microphone, Yes, of course, it's fine for you to pray without your head being covered. And we'll explain why in verse 15. Hold on. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? The answer of the Western church for the last 2,000 years is yes. And so when the church has also gotten it wrong by trying to cow and subdue women and subjugate women, that's a gross contradiction that does not build, It does not scale. Verse 14 Verse 14 is a joke. I know it's not written that way because translators are trying so hard to make this sound like Paul. Verse 14 is a joke. He says, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? (laughs) Come on, laugh. It's funny. Uh. See, the Stoic Greeks cut their hair super, super, super short. Paul began his second missionary journey. He goes through Greece. He goes through Macedonia. He goes through Philippi. He goes through Thessalonica. He goes through Berea. He goes through Athens. Finally, he stops in Corinth. Years have gone by. In Corinth, he takes a vow not to cut his hair. And we know that he's there for at least 18 months. Hair grows at half inch a month, give or take. It was already long when he got to Corinth. He's there 18 more months, doesn't cut his hair. He looks like cowboy. Seth, stand. No, you're good. You're fine. He's got hair that's at least lower than his shoulders. And they probably hated him for it. And he's like, oh, yeah, I don't like long hair, do you? (laughs) Remember, he's also bald. So he's rocking the full David Crosby, okay? (laughs) He got long hair. At the end of his time in Corinth, Acts 18, 18, after 18 months, this is how I remember it, he finally cuts his hair. And he ends his second missionary journey and he sails back to Antioch. He had long hair. Paul's not saying it is disgraceful to have long hair. He had long hair himself for 18 months. Not only that, all Jewish men covered their heads to pray. That was their custom, and Paul never rebukes or corrects that, ever. He was a Jew. He never got over it. He still is. So all of these styles and customs they were trying to impose because of their misappropriation of authority was terrible for the church. Verse 15, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her Miss, swing and a miss, ESV, in most of your translations. Her hair has been given to her, the word is anti, instead of a covering. You want her hair covered? Groovy. God supplied it. God gave her hair to be her covering. She good. She good. She's covered. You, you don't have to try to slap a bonnet on her. God did that already. Amen? Amen. Good. Verse 16 is fantastico. If anyone, because he's addressing the men of Corinth. All these problems from chapter 11 through 14, he is addressing the men. not I mean, principally the husbands, but then by, by secondary appropriation, the men of the church, primarily the husbands. If anyone is inclined to be contentious about what I have just written... This isn't happening anyplace else. He says, we have no practice, nor do the churches of God. You guys are the only ones doing this to your women. I will not back you. I do not back you. Stop it. You are out of order. The church is to be that environment, that aesthetic, that atmosphere, where it is God and us. We're both sexes, both genders, though different in function and role, are elevated, are valued, are maximized. It is about God and us. So just very quickly, I know I'm over time. Let me just give two very quick principles from this. Number one, I'm gonna state the obvious. It goes like this. Women are us. I don't mean like that out of business toy store. Relax, I don't mean like that. I know that we all know that women are us, but it doesn't always translate to how we treat women in churches or marriages or in parenting or in the community. For thousands of years, unfortunately, males have errantly dominated and shamed women and then used sacred texts such as this to justify their abuses. It must not occur in churches or homes. Having said that, I also have to cautiously correct and address the other side of the extreme of the pendulum and remind us that function and role do not determine value or worth. The Spirit is no less valuable than the Son nor the Son than the Father. Each are fully persons of the Godhead and in the same way, women are not merely on the journey that men are trying to fumble our way through leading. That's his boat. You better just get in and help him row. No, no. Christ in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And yeah, you too. Congrats, good. But we get to do it together and one plus one equals five. It's a beautiful thing. Second point, our worship is to reflect the created order. Remember how we started. I know, I know we've covered some ground. The Bible is the story of the earth and how God has been working mightily and marvelously to redeem man to himself and one another. Creation is this great grand temple in which God and mankind are intended to dwell together in mutual, completing, harmonious joy and fulfillment. It would be a massively missed opportunity for our worship setting if it didn't prize and value women and men equally in terms of their esteem and worth to God and our church. However, this is not an egalitarian passage. It's a complementarian passage. There are functions and there are roles and multiple opportunities for all of us to submit ourselves to somebody else for the greater good. You do this every day during the school year. You roll up on some elementary school and there's a crossing guard and they make you stop your vehicle. You could probably do their job better. They're not all rocket surgeons. You could probably be a better crossing guard than that guy is, or maybe not in my case, I don't know. But you submit for the greater good and the safety and the flourishing and the well-being of all those other lives. Submission is part of what we see in the Bible. There is an order of things in in our marriage relationships without question, and that's good. The husband is God's ordained model of headship, and he is the one who is given responsibility, not the wife which means he will give an account. And so to have that responsibility, he must also have authority, not to dominate, not to subjugate, ever. But he is the one who will be held accountable and not her. And so, we say this all the time, responsibility without authority is devastating. That that authority and rulership is never about dominance, ever. He's already told those people then and these people now that we individually and corporately are the temple of God in this age. His dwelling in his residence. This is where we show what God is in this setting that he is setting things to rights and has already begun to set things to rights. It's his kingdom. He loves his daughters and his sons equally. God and us. Emmanuel, the with us God. If you're still not convinced, I invite you to read the gospels and see how Luke depicts Jesus Dealing with women. He loved the women, his sisters in the Lord, who both God and man, the perfect personification, microcosm of God and us, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but submitted his life even to death, death on a cross, because he thought we were worth it. And so may this be a place, this church, this church, temple in the 21st century in East Texas, be a place that radiates, reflects, resembles God and us. Let's pray together. You can leave your heads uncovered. (laughs) Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity and the privilege to wrestle with a difficult passage. I pray, God, that you will redeem whatever words I have misspoken, that the only words that would persist would be yours that your truth would sound forth and not return void. Father, I pray that there's someone who's had a hangup about passages like this that has kept them from seeking relationship with you, that you would move irresistibly by your spirit and draw them into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus. They would step out of darkness into light. For the rest of us, Father, would you give us the courage, the boldness, the conviction to repent where necessary, to see the women in our church, in our homes, in our community, the way that you see them, to treasure them, to partner with them, to be bettered by them? Would you also, Father, compel and convict the men to rise to nobility and dignity and conviction to create a space in which you and us, Father, dwell and are seen as a light to this community? We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus, amen.